Ever heard of ELAP? You know, the emergency assistance for livestock, honeybees, and farm-raised fish. Or did you know there's a new director at USDA's Rural Development? This is your chance to get information on both, and it's worth a listen. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. Jackie Fatka, the Farm Progress Policy Editor, did the hard work for this episode, talking with two key folks at USDA. She starts off in a conversation with Zach Ducheneau, Administrator of USDA's Farm Service Agency, and he kicks off his conversation discussing the expansion of ELAP to cover feed transportation costs caused by the drought. But Jackie does explore other issues as well, since it's not every day you connect with the director of a USDA agency. And yet we did, because we also turned to Zochiel Torres-Small, the new head of USDA Rural Development, who shares her insight on what she sees ahead in that position. But first we turn to Jackie's conversation with Administrator Ducheneau. This is Jackie Fatka, Policy Editor with Farm Progress, and I have the privilege today to speak with Farm Service Agency Administrator Zach Ducheneau. And we're going to talk about uh, some different things that are going on at the agency that are impacting farmers. And so we're going to start off. I understand that there's been some changes to the emergency assistance for livestock, honeybees, and farm-raised fish program, also known as ELAP, to help cover the cost of transporting feed for livestock that rely on grazing. Uh, Administrator, can you share how these changes will in effect impacted producers nationwide and also maybe give us an update on where things are at with the drought that's really impacting a lot of those livestock producers in the Great Plains and in the West? Yes, absolutely, Jackie. And thanks thanks for the opportunity to share this with, with your listeners. As part of our ongoing work to, to broaden our assistance, find our flexibility in order to better deliver the programs that we have, we had some conversations over the summer about the drought and the widespread nature of the drought and the fact that most of our tools had really been only tailored and implemented to serve a more focused drought. Now that this drought is spread from North Dakota to New Mexico and is creeping over into the Midwest, we had to find something that could better provide support for our livestock industry because the standing programs for the livestock industry haven't evolved in the way that the crop programs have. So what we, in during a drought tour of North Dakota, producers of all commodities shared their concern for the livestock industry. We had corn growers, wheat growers, soybean folks, all concerned about the livestock industry. And they shared the sentiment that We've, we've got insurance to help mitigate some of this and where we can make a crop, the prices are, are decent for us, but we're really concerned about our friends in the livestock industry. So we took that to heart and tried to find some solutions that we could build that would better serve the livestock industry and just to help keep that national cattle herd together and not force a, a dispersal or a dispersion, if you will, at, at fire sale prices. So in conversation with some of our friends on the Hill around the ELAP program, it became apparent that we might have the authority to pay for the freight, the additional freight, getting feed to producers' livestock herds where they're at. So that was the change that we made and announced a few weeks ago to the ELAP program. One of the changes I'd like to make to the ELAP program 
as a humorous aside is to change the name of the program so that it's not so unwieldy and wordy. <laughs> and the acronym is actually an acronym, but little step, Jackie. Little step, right? You know, we do live in a world of acronyms, it seems like, at USDA, right? Um, yeah. and, and this was funds through the CCC, right, that were allocated um, to help kind of offset some of the, the high prices and that a lot of these producers would have to pay to, to get the feed actually there where they need it. So this is a standing disaster program with a, with its own funding source. And give me a second to pull up that part of the notes and I can tell you where that's funded from. We did do a CCC announcement, I want to say a week ago, but that funding is separate from this ELAP change that we're talking okay. about. Good. Good to know then. So even maybe some more funding could be available for livestock producers impacted by the drought um, from some of the yes. CCC yep. funds. Great. Kind of switching gears a little bit, but another big thing that you have been involved with there at the FSA offices have been the COVID aid distribution for farmers. And I wondered if you could just give me where do you sit today on the pandemic assistant payments? And, and also, are there certain segments of the ag sector that may still need additional help? Yes, there are there are some segments that we're still working on. Uh, small hog production facilities that were victim to spot market prices and negotiated contracts during the pandemic when there wasn't enough slaughter capacity to to accommodate them was one of those specific segments that was identified. We're working on developing a solution that will help those folks, and we're kind of coming to the the conclusion of our pandemic assistance for producers. We just had a couple of our programs close October 12th, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And now we're gearing up to put out the next round of assistance that Congress got us in the reconciliation bill or the continuing resolution rather. So we've been happy to see the increased sign up with our historically underserved populations, you'll recall one of the evaluations that we made early on was that there were gaps and that the payments were maybe making it out disparately to non-socially disadvantaged folks. Did work with cooperators there to help spread the word, and we've seen a 14% increase in historically underserved populations accessing the CFAP brand of of pandemic assistance but along the way we've done timber timber haulers and harvesters pandemic livestock indemnity program for those that had to depopulate animals it's it's been a real busy season for us alongside all of our other regular work but our staff has definitely been up to the task and exceptionally happy to be able to do it you mentioned the staff, and, and this week, uh, President Biden actually officially nominated a handful of FS, FSA state executive directors who help oversee those FSA operations and the ag policy implementation in the state. Uh, maybe if you could just kind of highlight what states now have those individuals in place and then offer a timeline of when we could see additional ones being named as well. So there are state executive directors, state rural development directors in the queue all along, and we continue to conduct interviews, and they go through a fairly exhaustive vetting process. And one of the challenges, there are a lot of 
political appointment to be made. And our, all of ours are in with those at the White House PPO. So our White House liaison is really working hard trying to elevate the importance of ours. We've staffed a few of these uh, state executive directors. New Mexico is one of them. I think we did Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, maybe. Yep. Yep. I believe both of those are on the list. Yeah. So there's those on the list and there's a few more in the pipeline and we're going to get them out just as quickly as we can get them through the interview and the exhaustive vetting process. That is a, they're, that they're, they're not kidding when they're going to do a background check on you for for a political (laughs) appointment. Well, another uh, federal mandate is that USDA is requiring all your federal employees, including those FSA state and county committee members and advisors to be vaccinated against COVID-19 by November 22nd, which is coming up here within the next little over a month. Have you heard of any concerns about the requirements? Is this something that that you are looking to address um, at those those county offices and also those members who are elected in those counties. Yeah, well, I mean, we're really relying on the science here, Tati, and the science and the data are overwhelming that vaccination helps prevent severe illness and prevent the spread of COVID-19. And the safety of our employees and those that we are serving is paramount to us. So we're really really driving the point home that we want folks to do this for their own safety and the safety of those producers that they have dedicated their lives in some cases to serving. You mentioned the underserved farmers earlier with being able to expand the pandemic assistance to them. Another big priority of FSA was distributing the $4 billion in relief that was passed earlier this year for black farmers and other farmers of color uh, at the time, I, I believe when we spoke a couple months ago, only four farmers had received those payments before an injunction was was put in place. Could you provide an update on the court challenges and, and what kind of timeline? I know that there was some filings this week uh, from from some of those who are looking to see that money in the hands of those who Congress initially intended it for. And also, has USDA attempted to file any their own challenges uh, in an attempt to unlock those funds to get it to those producers that Congress intended it to be for? That's a very good question, Jackie. So one of the things that I'm learning here as the administrator of the Farm Service Agency is that there is a, a lot that goes into a court case of this nature. You know, there have been almost literally countless filings in, in courts all across the country over this but we are still under the preliminary injunction and we're vigorously defending it at the district court level. We're building our record, making our case there to that district court judge uh, in the Miller case in Texas, for the most part, there is no timeline that we can offer people at this time for payment because that preliminary injunction is, has got our hands tight. We're still only at the four people that have been paid, but the preliminary injunction allows us to continue to send letters out notifying folks of what was authorized by Congress in March and what their payment would be in in the event that we are able to go forward with that payment. 
the, the frustration that we experience not being able to deliver, deliver that much needed assistance is, is real. And it, it's our, our farm loan team has done yeoman's work getting that out the door. Our county office has answered countless questions and we maintain a holding pattern. I can share that I've read some political, political articles that there are legislative solutions being contemplated by Congress that maybe are of a race-neutral nature to try to get this aid out to those historically underserved producers and others who are in economic distress. But beyond that, we're in a hurry-up-and-wait posture. Hurry up and wait. That's a lot of how things operate in the Beltway now that you're out there, right? A lot of hurry up and well, wait. Yeah, but that's not me causing it. <laughs> well, that's because uh, no, you're you're a farmer and you understand what it really what it really means that we can't really hurry up and wait. That's not that's not your that's not in your blood, right? <laughs> that, that's true, and and we're working on all fronts to try to bring solutions to the producers that would be affected positively by those ARPA payments. We sent out a written communication to every single direct loan borrower on our portfolio, socially disadvantaged and not socially disadvantaged, making them aware that we're offering another COVID disaster set aside of their loan payment through January of next year. Also reminding them that they have the option of primary loan servicing so that they might be able to come in and take advantage of a favorable interest rate or extend the terms of their of their notes just to help mitigate some of this from their existing production income instead of instead of having to just be in that holding pattern with us. We're making sure that we're offering solutions and providing that flexibility to all of our borrowers. You know, you mentioned being able to kind of look at your whole loan portfolio and and not just those that were specified within that original relief package for farmers of color or black farmers specifically, but also some of those traditionally socially disadvantaged uh, defined that definition that USDA has used. Does that bring in a lot of additional uh, folks who who could also maybe have some of that access to some of the the money that that this court is actually kind of trying to figure out if it should be able to be used for for everyone that that would fit into that socially disadvantaged category. Well, it, I think the secretary has made it very clear that we understand that nobody is having runaway profitability in the ag industry right now at all. That the the stress of the pandemic and the economic of inflation and supply chain difficulties have impacted every single producer in the country in one way or another. And we're definitely working to try to find ways to help all of those producers as we address those supply chain issues that the Secretary's been very clear about our position on. Well, very good. Well, I always like to end an interview with the open-ended question. Is there a question I didn't ask that I should have asked? Are there other things that producers might be interested to know that that you're watching there at FSA? Well, I don't know what what the sequence of the presentation of this will be, Jackie, but just to tie back to ELAP real quick, we're putting a tool online 
that will allow producers to kind of calc- get an idea of what their payment will be with that new seed uh, rotation aspect of ELAP. So that that I think that's an important aspect of what we're doing, trying to trying to help the producer know more as they come in and empower them with the tools they need to know what they're going to have for planning purposes, because we understand that as much as we'd like to, we don't live in a reality where we can do same-day payments, but we can help that producer understand what that payment might be and get a better idea for planning purposes, because we're coming on to the, the really tough part of the year for a lot of producers in the northern tier when they're already taking less than what their livestock are worth, but now they've got to figure out how to feed that livestock through the winter with elevated feed prices. So some, as many tools as we can provide them to plan. So we're really glad to be rolling out that, that tool on the, on the website. And it does look like a great tool, and we'll have a link to that tool on our website too. So we appreciate uh those those great resources for our farmers. Uh, Administrator Ducheneau, so great to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time today. You're welcome, Jackie. I sure appreciate it. And keep up the good work. Let us know if we can help you. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Bye. We thank Administrator Ducheneau for taking the time from his busy schedule to talk with Jackie. It's good to get insight on some of these programs from the folks responsible for making them happen. And we appreciate Jackie's work to make that connection, which she does in our next segment. Undersecretary of Agriculture for Rural Development, Zochil Torres-Small, was recently confirmed for this new role. She talks with Jackie Fatka about what she sees for this agency in USDA that has a wide-reaching mandate. Let's listen to that conversation. I'm excited to be able to talk today with New Mexico native and former House Representative Zochil Torres-Small, who was confirmed and sworn in as Undersecretary of USDA Rural Development. And so we're excited to hear about her goals and uh, just what she brings to this this role. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ms. Torres-Small. Jackie, thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful for this chance to have a conversation and feel free to call me Soch. Soch, okay. Excellent. Uh, Well, many of our listeners may not know much about your experience that have led you to this position. So let's start by hearing you share a little bit about yourself and those experiences you bring to the table. Thanks again, Jackie. I am so thrilled to get to join uh, rural development and work under the leadership of President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Agriculture Secretary Vilsack uh, to build back better in rural communities that support our whole country. Uh, And I learned that in a really fundamental way growing up in New Mexico. Uh, My grandparents immigrated from Mexico to pick cotton. uh, And so their work and that opportunity that they had uh, to participate in our ag economy gave me the chance uh, to get to grow up in New Mexico and ultimately represent my home in in the House of Representatives. Uh, And in the House, I I worked uh, representing the largest district geographically that isn't its own state. So it's a lot of rural communities, a lot of dirt roads, a lot of volunteer fire departments, uh, a lot of rural water utilities, and all of the opportunities 
opportunities and challenges that come with that. Um, one of the first things I did as a representative was actually reach out to rural development uh, to work on initiatives to support communities because I, I learned, uh, I was a field representative for Senator Udall, and I remember the first rural development employee that I met because she was so involved in the community, so aware of what um, their vision was for their future and how we could work together to make that happen. So I'm really grateful to join now uh, back with rural development to build back better, to support America's rural communities on the front lines of climate change and to increase equity uh, so that no matter who you are and where you live in our country, you have access to our American dream. You know, you mentioned a few of your goals there during the Trump administration. This this position that you're holding there, the undersecretary position for rural development, was eliminated kind of as the technicality to allow for an undersecretary of trade. They reestablished that in the last farm bill. Can you just share how you see the return of this position helping meet the needs of rural America and, and maybe build on some of those goals you mentioned there at the last little bit of our, our opening question on what goals you have for the rural development division? Absolutely. I am so grateful that this position uh, was brought back and to get to be Undersecretary for Rural Development. I'm incredibly grateful to Senator Stabenow for reinstating this position and the entire Ag Committee for getting it into the Farm Bill. Uh, and I'm also so grateful for the inspiring team of professionals who has uh, made sure that rural development's unique mission continues, even uh, when there wasn't an Undersecretary, to get uh, uh, historic levels of funding out the door, whether it was investments in broadband or uh, getting running water across to our entire country, uh, an effort we have to continue to prioritize, uh, as well as investing in local economies uh, and communities' visions for how to take those economies into the future. Um, the undersecretary position really is crucial in, in, in continuing to build upon that work uh, to provide an overarching vision of strategic community development uh, so that uh, rural folks, rural development can invest in pivotal uh, solutions, whether it's a water utility service that helps bring a new employer to the town, or whether it's increasing broadband so that uh, we can improve uh, the remote work that's happening in a rural community, but finding those pivotal investments uh, to help bring rural communities uh, the opportunities that they deserve. We continue to hear so much about the need about connecting the rural digital divide. What do you see as the strengths and weaknesses of the ReConnect program, which is something that's under your, your oversight now, and how can USDA embrace its ability to maybe work across agencies to continue to provide that additional broadband to connect that last mile that we know exists in a lot of areas across the country in rural America? That is such a great question because we all know that uh, internet connectivity is crucial so that if you're a kid anywhere in the country, you can do your homework from home. And the question is, how do we coordinate with everyone who has a vital uh, part of the solution to get projects funded quickly and effectively? Um, rural development has some key uh, special uh, 
powers when it comes to the work that they've done on the ground, uh, whether it's our unique rural mission that gives us a lot of expertise uh, to work with local partners, whether it is those relationships, whether it's with rural electric co-ops or other utilities in the area, as well as with tribal, go tribal governments uh, and local governments. We have really key relationships and also the awareness of how uh, there are multiple partners in building that solution on the ground, um, whether it's the local hospital or the local library um, that we can use to get connectivity to the middle mile, which makes it easier to then disperse it to that last mile. Um, but as you mentioned, coordination will be key, uh, working with NTIA, working with FCC to make sure that um, we're, we're using all of our expertise to get uh, to get these funds out quickly. I'm incredibly impressed that rural development's been able to stand up the reconnect program um, while receiving significant funds to invest. Uh, and we've, we've got to continue to work to make sure that money gets out the door quickly and that the projects uh, break ground and complete so that we can uh, have uh, connectivity for everyone across our country. I love that special powers. It feels like you, you have um, the, the special powers of, of um, Superman, right? So we, we do need all those extra superpowers to get rural broadband service extended for sure. Uh, you know, many of the rural development funds are targeted at those cities with less than 10,000 people. And, and maybe just why is this important for this definition and being able to make sure that those smaller towns across the country also have access to funds? That is such a great question, um, and, and it really brings me back to both working as a representative for my district where I worked with a lot of towns that were 10,000 or smaller, um, and also some experiences as a child. My um, my uncle is a, was a rancher in Colorado, and in an incredibly small town, less than 100 people, and not only was he a rancher, he was also a volunteer EMT and firefighter, right? And his wife was a, my aunt was a school teacher uh, in the next town over. Um, it just shows how everyone is doing the work in those small communities. And it's because there's not the same uh, economies of scale uh, to get all of the work done. So people have to take on extra jobs. And that's the same with um, with getting better housing infrastructure, for example, or better water infrastructure or internet. There isn't that same economies of scale to compete. Um, so making sure that we're supporting those communities that still need those same services. Also, because everyone's volunteering in different jobs, you know, I've worked with so many volunteer mayors or associations of uh, residents who just know that this project needs to get done, so they take it upon themselves to get this funding. But it's really hard to compete with other communities that have a grant writer and a whole department um, that's focused on getting funds. So building capacity in these micro communities is crucial to make sure that no matter where you live in our country, you have access to um, a healthy life and opportunity. I think I spoke with Secretary Vilsack uh, when he, just before he left the last time uh, at, in this role, and, and he talked about how there's a lot of people who may not know all the things that USDA's Division of Rural Development does, some of those local grants and loans and funding that 
sometimes go under the radar or people don't understand. Share with our listeners something maybe the farmers don't know about USDA's Division of Rural Development uh, and being able to connect those those funds to those who need it or just your overall mission there at the Rural Development. Absolutely. I'll do both, the specific and the broad picture. Um, so one of the I represented a lot of colonias as um, uh, a U.S. rep. And um, so these are communities along the border that often lack basic infrastructure, whether it's electricity or uh, roads or flood control um, or other utilities uh, that just lack basic infrastructure. And so it's really hard to um, really grow opportunity in those communities and support your kids. Um and one of the biggest complaints I got or challenges I, I faced when talking with people in Colonias was the high cost of propane because they didn't have access to the gas line, right? Um, and the answer we found was actually through rural development because uh, there were opportunities for direct loans for new homes. And those new homes were connected to all of those utilities. And often the payment for those mortgages was actually cheaper than the payments that they were making on their existing homes that weren't connected to those resources. Um, so when it comes to the challenge of affordable housing across rural America, something that's crucial, you know, both in the ag sector when it comes to farm workers and having that um, uh, that that workforce that is supported, um, as well as just everyone living in rural communities, aging rural communities, uh, rural development is on the ground making a difference and getting infrastructure to homes. Uh, when it comes to the larger mission, part of the reason why having rural development employees on the ground is crucial is that you get to know what a community's vision is for its future. And I am hopeful that as we continue to address uh, inc increasing equity in rural communities and fighting uh, systemic problems and injustices that we faced, that we are building capacity in rural communities so they no longer look at rural development as a set of programs, uh, all of which are distinct and require different applications, but more as an opportunity, a visioning partner. They can say, this is what we want for our community. How can we use all of your programs to address that? Love it. Well, this kind of builds into the next one. I know uh, there's there's many folks on the ground, but another key part of that partnership is the state rural development directors. And we do have seven that were recently announced by the White House. When do you expect to have more announced and, and also share your interaction with those state directors and advancing your goals at the agency? Uh, Jackie, you're so right that state directors are crucial to that on the ground work that rural development is so good at. And that's why we're focused on putting the right leaders in place at the field level. Uh, it's something that I spoke to a lot of the senators in the Ag Committee during confirmation about in terms of making sure that we get those state directors in place and that they are the right people to build that local capacity that we were just talking about. So I was really excited about the first tranche of state directors that were announced. I actually attended the same orientation as them and the energy in that uh, in that call was just palpable. And, and so I'm, I'm excited about the people who we've brought on and it really reinforces how crucial it is to get the right leaders in place. Uh, a good example is the state director from Alabama, uh, Nivery Gordon. He uh, so he's worked for rural development for over 30 decades. And so he knows all of those tools that can be used to help build a community's vision. Uh, but he also um, 
operates a family beef and cattle and quarter horse farm with his wife and sons. And so he knows firsthand how rural America provides for the rest of the country and why those investments in those communities are crucial. Uh, so I'm excited to, to be able to work expeditiously to get the rest of the state directors on board and make sure that they are the right leaders in place to do the job. Excellent. Well, Undersecretary Torres Small, it is wonderful to hear you're officially on board and it sounds like you've got a lot of exciting things going forward. So again, thanks so much for taking the time today. Jackie, thank you so much. I'm excited to get to keep talking with you in the future. Very good. Take care. Thanks to Undersecretary Torres Small for her time with Jackie. A new leader of any agency has a lot going on, and we appreciate getting a few minutes for this conversation. Thanks also to Jackie Fatka for doing the hard legwork it takes to connect with these key folks at USDA to get their thoughts on a range of issues. There was some great information here in both conversations. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs. And of course, the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days. I want to bring up something else that we offer, our Farm Progress Now mobile text service. This is a way for you to get a quick news bite every day from our editors, usually a top story or something of great interest. But it's also a way to be first to get information when a USDA report comes out or other news alert. And we also have the Farm Progress panel, which offers you a chance to share your thoughts on a question of the week. To sign up, simply text FARM, F-A-R-M, to 20505 to sign up. You will get a responding text, which you need to answer, and then you're in. We like that two-step process to make sure you really want the service. And thanks for joining. Be with us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening. <music>